Our scripture reading comes from Psalm 103, 8 through 12. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. When we work our way to Jonah 1, 1 through 3. I'll take the lights. Could I have the lights on, please? <laughs> Sorry. It got really dark in the edge of the table. Thank you. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. We are in the first week of a sermon series on the book of Jonah. Uh, and I, I like Jonah, and I think part of it might be because I grew up in the church, and we weren't uh, always like every week attenders, but I went enough to know who Jonah was. All right, that's not a very high standard, but, but I went enough to know who Jonah was. And I also knew uh, about the creation and the fall and I knew about Noah and his ark, and I knew about Father Abraham and that he had many sons, um, and I knew about Moses, both the, the like, let my people go part and the Ten Commandments part. So I, mean, I was like a biblical scholar at like the age of six. I knew David and Goliath. Uh, I sometimes knew Daniel in the lion's den, depending on what year. Uh, you talk to me about Jonah and the whale. It's like right in those, that line of stories, right? It's, it's the ones that we teach our kids. Uh, we have a joke in our house that, that when we look at Scripture, we think sometimes the most disturbing stories are the ones we choose to teach our kids. Uh, I think particularly of Noah and the ark. But, but there is some truth there, right? I think when we can justify it and we can make sense of it and we can put it uh, in a frame that a young mind understands, it makes it a little more palatable. Uh, for us as adult believers, too. And uh, Jonah and the Whale is definitely one of those. It's, I don't know how often you read it. It's a very short book in the Old Testament. It's, it's only four chapters long. Uh, you are in for a treat because I'm going to spend six weeks <laughs> on a four-chapter book. Yay! No, but there's just so much there. Like, it's, it's really worth six weeks, I promise you. You won't be bored. Um... But, you know, it's, again, it's the story that we paint nurseries in churches with. You know, there's, there's the whale, and he swallowed Jonah, and he's just, like, camping out in there for three days. And, and then maybe further on the mural, he's getting, uh, Scripture says, vomited uh, out. So maybe we, we, like, make that a little cleaner for the kids. But, you know, he gets, he gets sprayed out uh, somehow on the land, and uh, that's just kind of what we know. And there's, there's people in Nineveh that need to turn back to God, and, and they do. 
uh, and Jonah's just kind of this reluctant hero uh, in the Old Testament. But if you read the book of Jonah, uh, and we will, I'm not so sure Jonah's going to be your favorite person. I'm not so sure he's going to be your favorite prophet, and it may make you question at the end what qualifies someone to be a prophet in the first place. He's, he's not great, really often. He has moments, but you even question the sincerity uh, in his moments where he seems like he does the right thing. Uh, it seems like his motivation's uh, a little strange, and uh, as, as we get into it, it's, it's amazing that we teach this book to kids, but we skip chapter 4. I looked through the children's Bibles I have in my office. None of them have chapter 4. Yeah, I keep children's Bibles in my office. I also have regular ones, too. Okay. But in the children's Bibles in my office, none of them cover Jonah chapter 4, and we won't for a few weeks. So if you haven't read it recently, I will leave you in suspense. But, but there's a lot going on here. And, and it's not the simple, easy kid story that we often tell. Uh, and, and the rest of this sermon, I'm going to kind of try to set the stage for what's going on. So uh, as Jimeline read for you, we're only going verses 1 through 3 today. Uh, the rest of them will be a chapter at a time. But I think it's important before we dive right in, to what the text is saying, that we look at the context of what's going on, that we look at historically what's happening, what are the people groups that are being talked about. And before I really go any further, uh, I just want to point you all towards a beautiful resource. It's called The Bible Project. Uh, I know some of you have heard of it. If you're in my uh, life group, small group, you've definitely heard of it because we watch the videos. Uh, but it's called The Bible Project. It's, it's videos online. They're really attractively done. And the reason I bring it up is I am very uh, thankful for that as, as I was preparing this series in this sermon. So I do want to give them uh, credit, not only because that's the right thing to do, but if you watch the video, then you'll be like, my pastor plagiarizes. So uh, I'm giving them credit. They're great. I'm not solely saying what they're saying, but uh, it's just a really helpful thing. And again, BibleProject.com, and they have every book of the Bible they outline. They outline different themes, really like well-done videos, really attractive uh, and, and just beautiful. So uh, check that out if you have a chance. But like I said, Jonah is really short. It's only four chapters. Uh, we're doing it in six weeks. But, you know, this book, it's not meant to just be be read and understood as a story of what's going on in Jonah's life. That's obviously there. That's a, that's a big part of it. It's a story uh, about a prophet and, and what kind of happens in his life. But by the time we get to the end, it's, it's like the story becomes a mirror that we're looking at. And the story starts reflecting back at us some of the uh, more negative um, aspects of our own character some of the more negative sides of who we are deep down inside. And by the time we get to the end of the final chapter, it's, it's kind of this monologue that is done uh, as God speaking. And it's convicting. So, so this is not just a story about an ancient prophet a long time ago, and we're just going to talk about it because it's worth knowing the history. All right, this is a story about us, and this is a story about how we interact 
in the world around us, and this is a story that, that holds up a mirror to some of the uglier places uh, in our own lives. Jonah is actually pretty unique among the Old Testament books. Uh, it's, it's the only prophetic book that talks primarily about what the prophet did. Most, most of the prophetic books talk about what, what they are saying, what they are uh, presenting to the people. You know, they're getting words from God, uh, and they're presenting it to the people, and that's largely written down. And we have some narrative of what else is going on, but, but Jonah is really unique in that we only have like five words of what he receives from God. He gives a five-word speech, uh, I think chapter three. And, and other than that, it's, it's about his journey. It's about what he's doing. It's about how he's interacting uh, in the world around him. And there's several main characters uh, in this journey. And the first one is God. You're familiar, right? Okay. Uh, sometimes you read Jonah and your question is, how familiar is Jonah with who this God is? Uh, because he interacts with God in a very strange way. This, this is the God of Israel. This is the creator. He created heaven. He created earth. He created the land. He created the sea. He did all of it. Uh, and this is a God without boundaries. God is not confined but by any parts of our world. And that sounds funny to say uh, to our modern selves. We're like, of course, God is not confined. But, but in the worldview of, of the people of Jonah's time, you know, they had lowercase g, you know, gods that were in charge of certain cities or they were in charge of certain regions. And there was kind of a pantheon of gods. And, and the idea was that gods had territory. This is not the god that Jonah's interacting this is not a God with territory. This is not a God that you can run away from and get, get so far away that you're like, well, I'm outside of your city now. Um, I, I've moved away. I've gotten on a boat. I've sailed away. Uh, no spoilers, but you know, you know the story, right? Uh, he gets on a boat and he sails away and he tries to run away from God. And, and if we don't get that part, uh, it gets really confusing. So he's trying to run away from God without really fully understanding that God controls all of this. Newsflash, you can't run away from God. Well, you can, but not effectively. You could do it all you want. But, but you're not going to get so far away that all of a sudden you're in, like, Zeus's territory. All right, like, if I get far enough away, then, it, like, this is Poseidon's sea now, and, and now he can't do anything. Or, or, or now... Uh, it's this other like pantheon of, of gods. Now I'm down in Egypt, so I'm under, I'm under their control. So, so that's huge in the book of Jonah. That's a big piece of what's going on is, is there's this, um, this misunderstanding between this prophet who should have known better and the God that he is serving. Exodus 34, 6, God describes himself the Israelite people. So what had just happened before this text is that Moses was up on the mountain and, and the people were waiting so long and they created the golden calf. Uh, they created an idol, even though they were told not to. And, and, and he comes down and, and there's judgment on the people and then God stops it from being full judgment. So, and then God describes his own character, who God is. And this is the words that are used. The Lord, the Lord. 
this compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger. Abounding in love and faithfulness. Maintaining love to thousands. Forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. This is who this God is. And because of who this God is, this is the only reason that that Jonah even exists. This is the only reason that there's Israelites going forward. Because if God wasn't this God, they would just be wiped out right there. So so later on, uh, the reason I bring it up is later on Jonah will quote this uh, in his own book, and this is actually quoted eight different times in the Old Testament as kind of this prime example uh, of who God is, what God's character is, who uh, he exists, or what he exists like in the world. So God's the primary character in the book of Jonah, and the second one is Jonah himself, the prophet. Uh, he's a prophet of God, and, and a prophet is someone who has this, this connection uh, with God and speaks generally the words of God to the people. So they're, they're kind of this in-between person. They have this special connection. They receive from God, and then they're able to speak God's words out in prophecy. And in the Old Testament, there's normally two kinds of prophecy. The main one is, you know, what we normally think of is talking about some future event, right? So uh, that's how we typically use it. You know, in the future, uh, this is going to happen. You know, so the prophet comes forward and they say, this is going to happen in the future. And then, and then we call that prophecy. And that does happen a lot. The second one is speaking the words of God but bringing clarity to a current circumstance that's going on uh, that the people are blind to what's happening. Uh, so it's kind of like saying, do you see what's happening in the world around you? You see, you see this pain, you see this sorrow, do you see what's happening? And then the prophet says, you only see partially. Here's what's fully going on. God is doing something. God is, God is active. God is moving in this way. So it's about a current event. Uh, but God is, is the one doing it. Interestingly enough, Jonah does appear one other place in the Old Testament. Uh, he's in the book of 2 Kings. 2 Kings 14, 23 through 25. And that's it. He appears once. And he's talking to a king of Israel that is known to be one of the most evil, wicked kings that Israel ever had turned many people away from God. His name is Jeroboam II. So Jonah is talking to Jeroboam II, and Jonah basically tells him, God's favor is with you. That should strike us as odd. God's favor is with you, and he's going to give you victory in battle. And this victory and this battle that is coming up will win uh, these different territories in the, in the south of Israel that have been lost over time. God is going to give you victory, and you're going to win these territories back. And that's it. Until we get to the book of Jonah. But that's the whole experience we have of who Jonah is. One, one small section, the book of 2 Kings. And interestingly, another prophet uh, named Amos, uh, in his own book, chapter 6, verses 13 through 14, reverses the same prophecy to the same king. He says, no, God's judgment will be on you because of your wickedness, and you will lose those territories, and you will not get them back. 
So that's not to say that Jonah is some kind of false prophet. He, he appears to be uh, giving true words from God uh, into this setting. Uh, but if that's our only context, and, and we can assume that the original readers of this book, they knew who this Jonah was, that we start off the book a little skeptical. Jonah's a little questionable. And it's the same Jonah. It says, uh, Jonah, son of Amittai. It's the same one. So we already start off and we're like, eh, I don't know about this Jonah. It seems a little strange. It seems like he's telling this evil king that, that this good stuff is going to happen. And, and that doesn't necessarily mean he's, he's awful, but he might not be our favorite as people who are living under this, this hard, hard king. So that's what we know of Jonah going in. And the third one I'll talk about is the Ninevites themselves. So verse 2, God says to Jonah, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. So who... Who's Nineveh? Who are these Ninevites? Is people that live in the city of Nineveh. And it's actually the capital city of the empire of Assyria. Now, if you read the rest of First and Second Kings, you would know a lot about Assyria. Assyria is bitter enemies with the Israelite people. And for really, really good reasons. They're known for their military might their huge empire, their brutality, and their sinful ways. They were incredibly violent. When they would conquer an enemy city, they would commit atrocities that, quite frankly, are just more graphic than I'm going to say up here. And it's, it's shocking how bad they are. They're, they're worse than anyone we can imagine, as far as a group. Really just terrible. So, so the Israelite people, they hate them, but they hate them for really good reasons. Right? It's, not, it's not outrageous that Jonah runs away if, if you're the first audience. You're like, yeah, those people? They're, they're so bad. If you're curious, I, I can tell you some other time. It's... it's it's shocking and it's cruel. And, and they're this, this city, like I said, the, the capital of Assyria. And if you don't know your ancient Near Eastern geography, uh, and I know you're all experts at ancient Near Eastern geography, but for those, maybe, maybe a couple people are not, uh, Nineveh is located on the Tigris River in modern-day northern Iraq. Um, it's a very fertile place, like soil-wise, uh, a lot of crops are able to grow, and uh, birthplace of many different civilizations comes uh, out of that area. And they worship their own pantheon of pagan gods. And like them, their gods were often shockingly cruel. Their gods were often described as being very harsh and incredibly selfish. So that's our three main characters. We have God. We have his prophet. And then, then we have the people of Nineveh. And again, if, if we don't fully understand this context as we enter the book of Jonah, then, then, then Jonah just seems like a weird story. So, the, so there's a lot going on here. Another 
thing I'd like to point out uh, is that the book of Jonah is it's this literary masterpiece, and there's, there's a lot going on. Chapters 1 and 3 reflect each other in many ways. Chapters 2 and 4 reflect each other in many ways. There's a lot going on, and it's very intentional, and how it's written uh, is intentional, and it is important. And one of the things that, that happens over and over again is that it likes to take characters who are stereotyped to behave one way and have them behave somewhere entirely opposite of what you would think. For example, there's a prophet, right? He's a man of God. But he doesn't listen to God. And he rebels against God. And he runs away from God. And he hates people. The prophet, the man of God, does all these things. That should strike us as odd. Does it strike you as odd? Okay, good. The next one, there's these pagan sailors. We'll get to them next week. They're, they're sailors on their ships, and, and they should be, in, in our minds, they should be immoral. They should be uh, seeking after their own gods. They should be very far from the one true God. But yet they actually repent. They turn back to God. They, they turn to God maybe for the first time and they interact with God with humility. So again, these characters that are doing the opposite of, of what you would stereotypically put them to do. And the final one is this powerful, powerful king of Assyria. He's obviously the bad guy. You only need to know like two things about Assyria to know this person is supposed to be the bad guy. But yet the king immediately turns from his ways. He, he repents. He leads his people in this season of, of mourning, in the season of turning to God. These are here to shock us. And, and they're here to, to open our minds to what's going on. And, and what often happens here is, is we already assume who we are. When we read the story, we assume that we too are a good guy. We assume that we would be one of the heroes. We assume that we would be uh, not only maybe just the prophet that God speaks to, but we would listen. You know, so as we go through the book, uh, we start judging who the characters are. And this is all intentional. I fully believe that this is intentional with how it's written. We start, we start judging who the characters are, and then in the end in a few weeks, it flips it all once again. And we realize that we too are the people that look towards others and say, are they worthy of God's grace? Are they worthy of God's forgiveness? Don't, God, don't you know what they have done? Don't you know what they have done in my life? Don't you know what they've done in the lives of, of my loved ones in my community? but yet you want to have forgiveness on them. And it, again, it's this mirror that exposes this part of us that, uh, that we would like to hold back. Verses 1 through 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. 
Verse 3, but Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarsus. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went on board and sailed for Tarsus to flee from the Lord. So verse 2, God says, go to Nineveh, preach against it. Their wickedness has come to me. I'm sending my prophet. I am sending you there. Um, he calls it a great city, not because of uh, their own morality, but because it's large. So he's saying this is a very large city. Uh, some historical reports actually say this was the largest city in the world at the time. Nineveh is not some small town. It's the capital of this mighty empire, and it may have been the largest city in the entire planet. But they're without a prophet from God. God calls to one of his prophets in Israel and says, go to Nineveh and preach against its evil and preach against its injustice. You are a prophet, I am sending you. Verse 3, Jonah goes in the opposite direction. We all know the story, right? Jonah goes the other way. He doesn't just go the other way. He goes down to Joppa, uh, which is a city that's a seaport, and he gets on a ship. And he starts sailing for Tarsus. Now, Nineveh is about a 500-mile journey uh, from where Jonah lives. Tarsus is about 2,000 miles in the wrong direction. It's a long way. Most scholars think it's in Spain. If you know your Mediterranean world, uh, he couldn't get any further than Spain. He didn't know North America was over there, otherwise he would have sailed for it. All right, so he's, he's going as far as he can, as quick as he can, in literally the wrong direction. Again, he's running away from God. And, and not just foolishly, he is foolishly running away from God, but, but it's also because he doesn't know God that well. This is weird. This is a weird, strange book. So he runs away and he starts sailing towards modern-day Spain. He's told to go northeast. He goes as far west as he can. And the question it should bring up in our minds is why? Why does he run? Why is he so reluctant to go? He's a prophet of God, but then he runs away. A few options. Is he afraid? Nineveh is a terrifying place to go. And can you imagine if you were an Israelite uh, person, let alone a prophet, and you're going to go there? I mean, maybe he's afraid. Maybe he's uh, terrified to go. Maybe he just doesn't like Ninevites that much. Maybe he doesn't like to travel. Well, he seems to like to travel. But maybe he doesn't like to travel by foot. <laughs> he doesn't like walking. We actually find out in chapter 4, but we don't find out yet. Jonah tells him himself why he didn't go. All we find out in verse 3 here is that he did it to flee from the Lord. He did it to run away from God. And again, this is a main theme here. Like I said earlier, there's this idea of God's being territorial, God's owning different parts of the world, and this is all lower G gods, right? But he doesn't know who he's dealing with. This is not one of these little city-state deities. This is the God that created everything. This God that is universal. This is the God that's everywhere. 
So what does it mean for us today? Maybe surprising to hear, but I think a lot of us do the same thing really often. I mean, hopefully you don't sail for Spain if God tells you to do something. But there's parts inside of us that we say, God, we'll let you have jurisdiction in this area if, if you just stay nice and tidy. We'll give you this, this city within this territory, but when it comes to this other one, we think we can run away to it. We think we can get away from God. And I've, I've told this story before, but our middle son is named Levi, and Levi's in second grade now, but back when he was in kindergarten, he had this really interesting habit. So we would go to be guests at people's houses, and, and Susan and I were, were good adults. We know the rules, so we would go in, and we'd go to the living room, and we'd sit down, and we were feeling really nice. We'd go into the kitchen and maybe help make the meal, but we stayed where we were supposed to go. Levi was in kindergarten, and Levi had this adventurous spirit, and he loved nothing more than finding every nook and cranny in someone else's house. It sounds fun. It's, it's age-appropriate in kindergarten, right? It's not too bad, but, but he would like to explore. So every time, without fail, sometime along our visit, Levi would disappear. And I guarantee you, he is looking in the darkest closets, in the deepest corners. He is searching the basement for anything he can find of interest. He is looking absolutely everywhere. When you invite Jesus into your life, he's not a good house guest. You can tell him to stay in the living room. You can tell him that he's allowed to come into the kitchen and help you fix the meals. But he's a little more like Levi than he is like me. When you invite him in to your life, he is going to go everywhere. He's going to look in every corner of every room. He is going to search for what he can find. He's going to be in the basement. He's going to look in all the dark places. And here's the good news. He's not afraid of any of it. When he looks under your bed and, and sees the things that you put away quickly because a guest was coming over, it doesn't scare Jesus. Those places in our lives that we keep hidden, even from God, are not scary to him. And actually, as he enters these dark places, he brings his light with him. He brings his restoration with him. He brings who he is, light in the darkness. He sees you. Do you ever think about that? He sees all of you. He knows you. He loves you. He desires to be in a deep, deep relationship with you. He's not interested in hanging out in the living room and watching some TV. He wants to be fully a part of all of this. And he won't stop pursuing you. So people of God, I think it's time 
that we stop running. If we truly trust who he is, the only reason Jonah runs away is because he doesn't know who God is. So if you're running away, you need to learn who this God is. Learn how much he loves you. Learn how much compassion he has for you. And in just a few moments, we'll take our offering, and then after that, we're going to do communion. And this is a beautiful moment of a God that is there for you. He's right there. And we just need to stop running.